Welcome. Uh, my name is Peter Trubowitz. I'm the uh, head of the um, International Relations Department and the director of the U.S. Center, which is hosting um, tonight's roundtable, the first 100 days, taking stock of the Trump presidency. We've got a lot of ground to cover tonight, um, and so I'm going to get right down to it uh, by briefly uh, introducing uh, the speakers. I'll take a minute to just go over the ground rules, and then we'll, uh, we'll get down to it. So my, uh, uh, to my immediate left is uh, Gideon uh, Rackman, the Chief Foreign Affairs Columnist for the Financial Times. And sitting next to uh, Gideon is Joan Williams, a distinguished professor of law and the founding director of the Center of Work-Life Law at the University of California, uh, Hastings College. Um, and next to Joan is one of LSE's own, Charlie Beckett, uh, who is the director of POLIS and a professor in um, media and communications here. And last, but certainly not least, is Leslie Vinjamori, uh, director of the Center on Conflict, uh, Rights and Justice, and associate professor uh, in international relations um, at SOAS, just down the road. So it's great to have all of you here this evening. Uh, thanks for joining me. Uh, so just a word about the game plan. So what we're going to do for the first 45 minutes, I'm gonna, we're going to have a discussion up here. Uh, I'm going to put questions to the, to the panelists, and we'll just try to have a, an open discussion here. And then for the final 45 minutes, we'll open it up to Q&A. Uh, and um, I'll do my level best to get as many people in as possible. What I'll probably do is group questions, because I know everybody's got a view on the first 100 days, um, and, uh, and we'll put those questions uh, to, uh, to the panelists. Um, um, and let me mention here that tonight's event, it's being live-streamed. Uh, it's being streamed to... Uh, LSE's many chapters uh, in, the, uh, in the United States, um, and we're also um, recording it uh, for posterity. And so, you know, with any luck, with any luck, it will actually be posted on the, on the website. Why luck? Well, because it all depends on you. You have to switch your phones to silent. You don't have to turn them off because then you couldn't tweet. And this is also being live tweeted, <laughs> and so you have an opportunity to um, to participate um, uh, that way. Um, and and if the spirit really moves you, you can can reach out and basically reach out to the president. He does, Sophie. He does follow us, right? Yeah. So um, if you know, make Donald's day. So um, uh, at any rate, um, we're going to go ahead and get started. Those are the ground rules. Um, so, Gideon, you know, it occurs to me that uh, a year ago, just a little over a year ago, you and I were on this stage. It was just shortly after Super Tuesday. Who would have thunk? Um, you know, uh, I mean, there's a lot of water under the bridge uh, since then. And um, I don't know, what do, you, what do you make of the first 100 days? I, I guess really the question is, what surprised you the most about these first hundred days? Well, I mean, it's been a stream of constant surprises in the sense that, you know, Trump is, I'm afraid, great if you're a journalist because there's a headline every day. Yeah. And one of the weird things about it is that after a while, things that seem completely outrageous, you've forgotten a week later, you know, <laughs> I, I, because there's such a, a torrent of stuff. So I actually sort of keep a personal checklist in my head of... <laughs> 
just, you know, when people say, well, what's so bad about Trump? I have to remember two or three things. Like, for example, I mean, back to the campaign, uh, the, the, the moment when he said that he thought that Chief Justice Scalia might have been murdered, you know, and that there was a pillow had been found over his face. I mean, nobody remembers that anymore. It's just like it's my kind of personal checklist of madness uh, in, in the kind of thing that, that happens. But since he became president, look, I mean, I was um, in Washington, was it two weeks ago now? And one of the interesting things is that everything gets relativized. So relatively speaking, people are more relaxed now. <coughs> I think that they were pretty terrified, certainly in the world I follow, which is for foreign policy in particular, that something incredibly radical would happen very quickly, uh, that Trump um, seemed to be at war with two of the basic principles of the liberal international orders, I'm sure it's known at the LSE, um, with the idea of open trade and with the idea of America, the American-led alliance system, and those are the two key pillars. And in fact, a lot of the things that he was saying, he turns out either not to have meant or not to be following through. So if you just go through some of the checklist of some of the shocking proposals, um, he hasn't actually, as yet, pulled America out of the WTO. He hasn't labelled China a currency manipulator. He said NATO was obsolete, and now he said, well, actually, it's not obsolete. Uh, he said he would move the American embassy to Jerusalem. Uh, he hasn't done that. He said he would rip up the Iran nuclear deal. He hasn't done that. And so people are getting to think, well, you know. Um, and then the personnel issues, I think, have also led to people's pulse rate slowing a little bit because the appointment of Michael Flynn as National Security Advisor was deeply alarming given both his views set out in his books, his own personal volatility, the fact that he then doesn't last and is replaced by McMaster who is regarded in the kind of Washington establishment, the group that Ben Rhodes famously labelled the blob, right. the blob like McMaster and, uh, and the blob quite like Tillerson and so they're beginning to feel a bit more reassured and indeed, then, the week I was there, two things happened that really cheered up the blob, uh, which was that Bannon got thrown off the National Security Council, and then there was the Syria strikes. And in, you know, in a funny way, it's odd that people should feel reassured that America's throwing cruise missiles onto Syria, but they were, and why? I think two basic reasons. The first is that Trump's rhetoric had been so isolationist that there was a sense that he had no interest in America playing a global security role, and here this seemed to contradict it. And oddly, even on humanitarian grounds, which was something that, again, he'd stood out against in the, in the election. And secondly, I think there was a feeling in the Washington establishment that, Trump, that Obama had made a mistake by not enforcing the Syrian red line. So maybe there was something even positive going on. But a couple of qualifiers before I hand on. I mean, I, I think people were... Maybe that mood of relief also reflected, however, the desperate wish to normalise Trump because it's so kind of bizarre and in some ways horrific that somebody who ran like this then became president, that people are very keen to say, it's going to be okay. Mm -hmm. I think it's too soon to say that, even in the foreign policy field, which, as I say, is the one I follow, and for a couple of reasons, uh, to uh, volat volatility and, and uh, his attraction to violence. On, on volatility... This is a man who can, we've just seen can completely reverse a year's worth of rhetoric in Syria in 24 hours. So we don't know what he's going to do. He could reverse again. Indeed, we were just discussing on the way here that there's now stuff coming out of the White House that maybe he's going to pull America out of NAFTA. Yeah, maybe he will, maybe he won't. But he's, um, so he's very changeable. 
And secondly, I found the Syria strike slightly alarming because one thing we do know about Trump, because he tweets about it all the time, is that he's obsessed with his approval rating. Right. When he saw that a few cruise missiles on Syria improved his approval, uh, approval ratings, well, then the following week you have this huge bomb dropped on Afghanistan and then the boast of a vast armada heading towards... In, uh, not in, actually, it was heading towards Indonesia, right. but yeah. in fact it was meant to be heading towards North Korea and is gradually getting there. Um, and I think that the, 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 my concern is that he's discovering that there's actually it's very frustrating doing stuff in, in domestic policy and is not going well. He does have power in foreign policy and this military action stuff seems to be popular. So I'd be concerned about that. Yeah, yeah. Joan, I mean, when you, when you look kind of back on, the, on these 100 days, I mean, um, I mean what, what jumps out for you? I mean, does he, um, what surprised you, I suppose, about, about I th- him? I think a lot, a lot of things have astonished all of us. I'm sure I speak for everyone in this room. Um, one of the things that I found most horrifying is the mainstreaming of white supremacists. Um, as part of the transition of Trump to the presidency. Um, it's the, although what's gonna happen with Steve Bannon now is anybody's guess. Yeah. So um, it's certainly true, as you say, the grown-ups have taken over foreign policy, which is a great relief, right? Because Steve Bannon got in there really quickly before the grown-ups got their act together, since they were proceeding uh, you know, in the way normal people proceed. Um, but now the grown-ups, the grown-ups have taken over foreign policy. Um, I think on the domestic side, things look pretty different. I mean, the other completely astonishing thing was the survival of Obamacare. Who would have thought? Um, and I think that that requires, um, I think there's an amazing lesson there for Democrats. I mean, Obama messaged, well, first of all, Obamacare combined a means-tested program to get through Medicaid to get people on to, to, uh, to people get people to health, uh, health insurance with a universal program um, that said that you can't um, have pre-existing, exclude people from pre-existing condition coverage, and um, you can keep your kids on your uh, insurance until 26. Uh, And so Obama messaged the means-tested program, the 20 million people he was going to get new coverage, almost ignoring the universal provisions. The universal provisions are what saved Obamacare. And I think, I hope Democrats will hear that because either let's have universal programs because means-tested programs trigger class conflict or have combinations, hybrids, and message them as universal programs. So I think that was another astonishing um, sort of lesson of the first 100 days. Um, but the, the, the sort of bottom line I see, um, when you think about, you know, he was going to drain the swamp, and all of a sudden there's a subway from Goldman Sachs to the West Wing. Um, I, I, what I see is kind of a Republican presidency as usual taking place where big business is obviously getting huge economic um, promises in terms of um, deregulation of the finance industry and huge amount of power in the White House. And the white working class is, got, is, is getting what Republicans have been giving them for 40 years. They got the Supreme Court justice, who's probably going to overrule Joe, Roe v. Wade. Um, and so they're getting family values. And then they're getting this new thing, 
which they suddenly care about, which they didn't care about until uh, 10 years ago, which is a clampdown on immigration. So um, I think, you know, what I see is very much a Republican president, business as usual. Huh. Republican president, business as usual. Charlie? Well, from my point of view, um, he's been very unusual um, <laughs> in the sense that he's, in his campaign, and we've spoken about this before, you know, his campaign inverted all the, the rules of political communication and conventional politics, media relations. Um, in a way, I think he has been absolutely fantastic uh, for journalism. Uh, in the sense, firstly, in the sense that people are really having to take seriously now the idea that the news media and information is critical. It, 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 it made Donald Trump happen, or it allowed Donald Trump to happen, and he's certainly how he exercises his power is through, you know, the manipulation of of everything from Twitter to uh, Fox News. So that's good. People realise this is important stuff to foreign policy, to domestic policy, etc. It's also, and Gideon hinted at this, uh, Donald Trump plus fake news has been an absolute boom to journalism as a business. I mean, uh, not just in terms of the ratings and the subscriptions soaring, which, yeah. is, which is great. CNN's doing great. CNN is doing fantastically. <laughs> uh, but everyone else is, frankly. Right. You know, and the conservative media is also doing very well. You know, if you happen to run a fake news site in Wisconsin somewhere, you're, you're doing great business at the moment. Um, but much more seriously, I think it's been very good, especially for uh, liberal, elite, mainstream American media. When I went out just after the election and visited hundreds of these people, they were in a state of shock and also a kind of moral panic. And when you panic morally, you often panic about the wrong things. They realised that they'd got the election completely wrong, that they hadn't told the story properly, they hadn't understood Trump and what uh, was happening out there. Uh, they also hadn't realised that they'd lost the trust and attention of the public. And that's bad for business, but it's also very bad for democracy. And since then, um, I think, yes, there's been a, a panic, but there's also been an extraordinary self-criticism, self-evaluation, and a lot of action and change uh, from US media. I'm talking about mainstream media in particular, mm. but also people like uh, Mother Jones have suddenly uh, risen in stature and in, in importance. You know, so-called alternative media has become much more prominent. But so, you know, the, the, the um, elite liberal media, you know, much hated by Donald, has, has realised it's got to get out of its coastal offices. Mm -hmm. It's got to get onto the kind of platforms and spaces where real people in their diversity, are having conversations. And I think it's got to learn that it's got to be much more expert. Uh, it's got to tell stories better. And it's also got to be much more humble. It's got to listen much harder. And it's also got to make some really tough decisions. And that's been interesting in this 100 days, is how do you respond to Donald if you are the New York Times, for example? Do you call him a liar, for example, in a headline? Do you campaign against him because he certainly is campaigning against you and what you stand for? Or do you report him objectively and allow people to make their, their minds up? So there's this ongoing um, debate within the media, which is, I think, fantastic. It's much, much needed. American uh, liberal media was hugely complacent. Um, and I'll 
perhaps two. So maybe not so many legislative accomplishments, but he's helped the, the yeah. media. <laughs> 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 Leslie, your take on, yeah, the, on the first so, 100 days. Well, I mean, you're, for your, you know, what is it, what surprised you question, I was thinking about this quite a lot yesterday, cause, uh, speaking on this yesterday night as well. And I think the thing that, you know, looking at this entire period, the thing that's perhaps surprised me the most, um, and perhaps I'm part of this, and we've, we've sort of used this word, is the extent to which we have, in a sense, normalized Donald mm-hmm. Trump. Not, I don't think we've done that entirely, but I know, in, in the, I remember back to the first few days where a number of people, and maybe David Rothkopf is a person that I associate with this with the most, the editor of Foreign Policy, saying we must not normalize this president. And I think there was, for a few weeks, and maybe even as much as a month, there was a very serious debate about that. Does one normalize this presidency and talk about policies and whether, the, whether or not there, there are policy changes? And, you know, analyze this president in, a, in, a, in the way that we would analyze other presidents, or is this about protest, right, and the politics of protest in a fundamentally different way of engaging with the presidency? And it seems to me that we've, moved, we've definitely moved past that phase, largely, and I and I, and, I, and I think I also that we, maybe many of us individually and also collectively, have gone from a phase of thinking, look, he's lost. You know, when the Ninth Circuit ruled against Muslim ban 1.0, we were phenomenally happy, many people, right? Um, and now I think there are moments where it's great when something's gone well. I mean, I sat up late when he, that, the evening when he appointed McMaster. I thought, <laughs> something good is happening, mm-hmm. right? I ordered dereliction of duty. I didn't actually have a copy of the book before, and I thought, you know, maybe this right. is the sea change. So now I think we're beginning to think, what are the good moments? Where could we actually see success? And that's fundamentally different from the first um, several weeks. The other, the, the other thing that I think is significant about this period is that the Democrats, the liberal elite, the liberal establishment, the 60% or 58% if we, if we look at the approval ratings, those who don't approve, um, still haven't worked it out, still haven't really come to any serious consideration of what it is that the 40%, why are they hanging on, and, and what did he manage to mobilize? There's really no very serious conversation about why Trump's been so successful, what he's doing with this Twitter feed, and why people who might not like what he's doing still fiercely hang on. There's no sense of progress in that, in that debate. Mm. So that, that surprises me. And then I just wanted to, to point out two moments that for me were um, jaw-dropping in different ways. That not very recently, actually, I think I had probably my most shocking and surprising moment. And it's also shocking and surprising that so far into the 100 days, it was my most shocking moment of the 100 days. For me, the most shocking moment in a negative way was when Donald Trump came out and congratulated, was the first leader of a country to congratulate the president of Erdogan on his success with the referendum. I was truly shocked. I almost couldn't believe that it was accurate. I waited to see, you know, were there more tweets? And it it obviously was. So I was desperately shocked that we could, that the United States president could sink quite so low. Uh, And so many, many, many days in, there are still things that can shock me. Um, And I guess the two high points um, that that I saw were, you know, the system is working, the Ninth Circuit Court ruling, Muslim Man 1.0, and, and like, like I mentioned before, McMaster's appointment. So mm-hmm. an interesting period, but uh, 
very troubling. Well, I, I maybe just kind of pick up on that and, and come back to use the McMaster point to just come back, um, maybe start here with a question about foreign policy and 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 to maybe drill down a little bit. So so Gideon, like what, what you identified is you know that Trump came in um, trumpeting. Uh, nationalism has to happen once, um, and uh, you know, kind of uh, jawboning with America's allies, especially in Europe, but not only in Europe, and uh, and talking tough, a lot of trash talk about about China, and uh, and we've seen this. Um, no matter reversal, but we've we've seen you know that uh, a. a, a NAFTA, maybe, you know, maybe NAFTA's okay, maybe not. I mean, from one day to the next, you mm-hmm. don't know well, thing, on, yes. on, 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 on NAFTA. But also, I mean, that, you know, now NATO is vital to American security. And as you, you know, pointed out, I mean, he's taken a different stance on, on, on China. I mean, at least China's better than its neighbor, North Korea. Um, and I, so I guess the question is, what's animating that? I mean, is it... So a lot of people, I think, think that he's like kind of found his inner globalist. No. Um, there, are, there are other people who think that it's McMaster and Mattis and maybe Tillerson are playing defense. The grown-ups have somehow managed to kind of um, constrain him. Um, and, you know, I mean, you could think of also the possibility there's been pushback internationally. I mean, where do you come down Well, I, I think that maybe the mistake, and it's a very natural mistake to make if you're sitting in a university or in a newspaper, is to look for consistency mm. and to think that there is some underlying thought there. Guilty. Uh, <laughs> and and that, that, I think, is, you know, we're going to find that that's very hard to pin down, uh, that he will switch backwards and forwards depending on events, depending on what, what he's seen on television, uh, what his daughter's seen on television, you know, v- vis-a-vis the Syria strikes. I'm not kidding. I think that's so you don't, you don't buy his unpredictability theory, his theory that, you know, kind of Nixon's madman theory. Well, maybe. You look, be inconsistent. Keep oh, look, I mean, yeah, that's in a, yeah, he said that. I mean, he, he has said, you know, he's got a few kind of ideas that he trots out every now and then, and one of them yeah. is, you know, oh, it was so absurd of Obama to say that he was going to retake Mosul, and I would never reveal my great plan. Yeah. It's a very childish yeah. kind of level of analysis. Um, but I think that what is the case, however, is that the McMasters, etc., um, whether they would, they would probably wouldn't put it like that in public, maybe not even to themselves, but have come in to office partly to thwart him as much as to work for him. Yeah. Um, and I think that the idea is that, you know, th- that you either... Th- th- a lot of Republicans have faced this, uh, this dilemma. Do you say, I'm not having anything to do with this, and some have taken that stance, or do you say, well, I've got to get in there and try to create a better foreign policy? And I think that that is the view of the Mattises and, and McMaster, and, the, and some of the lower-level appointments. I mean, one of the worrying things is very few of them being made, actually. There are huge rafts of empty yeah. positions everywhere. But, but, for example, the Russia person in the National Security Council is a woman called Fiona Hill, who's actually British. Uh, but, although I think How'd she's, that a, she's, she's an American passport holder. But anyway, she's, she's from the Brookings Institution. She's written a very critical book on Putin, a perfectly mainstream analyst of Russia. Now, why is she working for Trump? 
not, I think, because she's a Trump fan, but because, well, partly because it's exciting to work in the White House, but also because I think they think, better we're in here managing it. The question is, can they manage it? Or, you know, in the end, he's the commander-in-chief. And so they're all taking a slight gamble that uh, they'll be able to channel him away from his most dangerous instincts. But we're, we're only 100 days in, and, yeah. you know, what happens when the crisis really hits in North Korea. He missteps. He's not somebody who's shown that he's uh, willing to lose face. So, um, yeah, I, I think that Trump has a number of quite protectionist, nationalist instincts, but he is open to persuasion, uh, but he's also incredibly volatile. So anything could happen, really. LAUGHTER <laughs> Uh, anybody else want to come in on the, on the foreign policy here? Well, I, mean, I, 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 would, I would agree entirely with Gideon, this thing, because there are a lot of people saying out there, look, he's become internationalist, right. or there is consensus, yeah. consistency and unpredictability as a, you know, as a strategy. I, I completely reject that. I don't think it's a strategy at all. There are clearly some serious people behind the scenes working this and trying their best. Um, but I, I think a lot of this is impulse. Uh, but, and there is the Trump as deal maker, right? What can work and what isn't going to work? And how do I claw back while still sending that incendiary tweet to the 40% that looks like nothing's changing, even when he's clawing back? So there's this doublespeak going on, which is masterful. We don't love it, right? But it is masterful politically. So he can make changes and look like he's not, right? Because he's saying two different things. In well, different I, I mean, that's an interesting question. I mean, can he really hold on to his base by moving towards the center, not just in foreign policy, but like, let's take up, like, you know, on, on domestic policy. I mean, this is a guy that got, he won the Electoral College at the end of the day by picking up white working class voters <clears throat> in, um, in, in major industrial states and, you know, and, and, and flipping them. And... And these are people that do not think they benefit from kind of liberal internationalism. Um, and, uh, and interestingly enough, when you look at the polls, right, Joan, it's, they, they think they do benefit from Obamacare, and they don't want that taken away. And so I guess... Now. One, now. 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 But that, I mean, that is interesting. And so kind of, I, feel, I suppose one question here is just, where are those voters? I mean... Can he hold them, or are they experiencing buyer's remorse? Are they likely to peel off? No, they are not experiencing buyer's remorse. I'm sorry to ruin your dinner. Um, Only 4% of Trump voters now say they regret voting for them. 15% of Clinton's voters say they regret voting for her. They are not experiencing buyer's remorse. This is a guy from Queens who has been condescended to by the New York elite for his entire life. He channels working class fury at elites because he's the boy from Queens who has been condescended to. And he knows how to do this brilliantly. And um, you know he's willing to let the grown-ups play in foreign policy because fundamentally his base doesn't care about foreign policy. One of the things they care about is jobs. And he's been out there working for them really hard, and he's saved, you know, like 2013 jobs in the entire United States. But he has said that he really cares about this. He is talking to companies. He is jawboning. He is messaging to them, I care about having a good job for you. This is the central, central issue. 
for white working class voters, and he's, he's handling it beautifully. They care a lot about immigration, and immigration, he's doing a fantastic job. Immigration is down, what was it, 69%? It's dropped dramatically on his watch. Illegal illegal immigration has dropped dramatically. They're extremely happy. He's delivered on that, too. Um, And he's delivered on the environment. They're very angry about environmental um, regulation for reasons we can talk about. Um, There's a lot of class conflict that's been triggered by environmental regulation. It's actually parallel to the class conflict that um, has been triggered in Europe over Brexit and the EU. Same thing going on there. It's a a class dynamic in regulation that has not been widely recognized. And um, they're very nationalistic, these white working class voters. Um, Being American is basically the the only high status category they belong in, uh, they belong to. We all stress the high status categories we belong to. That's why they're very patriotic, they're very nationalistic. They think he's doing great. Um, So I think that Trump is not a stupid man. He is unbelievably brilliant at channeling this white working class anger um, at elites. And I think he's continuing to do it beautifully. And the fact is, because of the structure of the Electoral College, these are voters in Michigan, Wisconsin, Ohio, Pennsylvania, voters that matter. And he's, I think he's keeping them. Yeah, go ahead, I say, I think Joe makes a, a really good point in terms of how he can focus and send signals on policy. And I think there's a danger that as we sort of, he becomes more normal or, and his way of communicating becomes you know, more reported, yeah. we sort of assume, well, that's, there's a system to it. But I think what he is brilliant at is differentiating. There is an illogic to the way he communicates, which works brilliantly because he has got different audiences. He's got his 40% audience, which, again, you have to realise is not monolithic. And he's got different ways. The fact that he uses Twitter to send particular signals is because he knows it's not a, you know, it's not a, a long policy document. It's deliberately there to have an emotional, short-term impact that can act as a distraction or it can act as a way of floating something. Um, it's not supposed to be a, you know, a presidential address. And he's very, very brilliant. Again, his, his relationship with the media, which still seeks um, to have a sort of rational approach to, mm-hmm. to, to reporting on policy, it is wonderful. He's still got this idea that he's in conflict with mainstream media. He constantly sends that, that signal that the hated CNN and failing BuzzFeed... He just did in the AP interview just to... But exactly. Ago. At the right. same time, he yeah. is increasingly doing mainstream media. And he's talking to them on the phone. He talks to the New York Times, the Washington Post... Mm-hmm on the phone, uh, you know, directly, personally, because he knows he's transactional. He knows he's got to try and influence those constituencies. So it's a kind of ritualised conflict that he's having with the media, which I think is quite typical of the way he deploys most of these policy issues. They're all very hugely symbolic. And, of course, you know, the most symbolic one was the wall. Just one quick point, though, where I think it... You know, I'm, I'm sounding like I'm... I think he's fantastic. But, <laughs> and, and God, he is, you know. But... I think we are, where you are going to see this policy of a kind of, you know, post-truth communication breakdown. I think we saw it over the relationship with Putin, or at least the media battle yeah. that Putin and uh, Trump in, in, engaged with over the Syrian, uh, the chemical attack, where 
um, Trump suddenly decided, yep, the truth is this was evil and Assad is a bad guy. Uh, well, Putin just has to turn around and say, well, you, you said a load of other nonsense uh, before, and, we, and no, no one can be sure that what is the truth anyway. We agreed on that, didn't we, Donald? Oops. So suddenly he's finding that the levers that you can operate with information and media don't work so well when it gets down to those hard diplomatic situations anyway. Huh. Yeah, I say just something? One, one thing to add on to that, which is that it, it, Trump also doesn't, he's not in competition, right? There's, there's nothing out there that, other, that people can grab onto if they don't like Trump. There's no obvious alternative. There's no <clears throat> fan, fantastic other person to you know, pin your hopes on in American politics right now. So it's... It, it, Late night it, TV, it, are you a, comedians? <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, you know, it's an easy, uh, it's an easy, it's yeah. an easy wall to climb at the moment. Which sounds terribly familiar in the UK. Doesn't, Doesn't it? Leslie, <laughs> 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 I wanted to ask you about, you know, so one of the things that, that um, Trump uh, campaigned on, I mean, Joan mentioned this, you know, was this promise to remove special interests from government, to drain the swamp, I've got them all right here, increase transparency, close the revolving door between government officials and lobbying. It's it's right here in Donald Trump's contract with the American voter. He actually laid it all out, right, in the the contract. And so I guess, how's that going? <laughs> it depends on who you ask. And, you know, this is where we keep going wrong. We keep going wrong again and again and again and again because we think that if we sort of analytically, you know, we separate this out, it, it's obvious, right? He's doing all the wrong things. He's doing everything he said he wouldn't do. He's bringing them in from Goldman Sachs. He's, uh, he's not playing ball with the investigations. He's blocking, he's obstructing, he's hiring his daughter, his son in law, and all the rest of it. But you know what? That's not what it's about, I don't think. For the base, I don't actually think it's about the words. Even, I think it's about the mannerism, the style, the recognition, which is shocking given his personal wealth and everything else. Um, so yeah, he's doing. Uh, he's you know he's in my view, um, he's made a, a tactical and probably also a strategic mistake. I think when the um, allegations of to, to, to go to the Russia right. Uh, right. When the allegations of the Russian meddling in the U.S. elections came out in December before he was even inaugurated, he should have said, this is, you know, we should investigate this, right? He should have taken, um, he should have taken his opportunity to say the integrity of American democracy and any democracy is absolutely essential, cannot and should not be violated, and we should subject this to scrutiny. And he might well have come out of this okay. Um, we don't know. But, but I think that was a tactical and strategic error. But I don't think it matters for his base, and I don't think it matters for mm. his ability to hold on. Um, I just don't think it, it resonates. I think that it's being framed in such a way that people think that um, they don't want to watch CNN anymore. I've heard this from many people in the middle of the United States. We don't watch CNN anymore. All they do is lead the witnesses down an emotional path that's on the attack, uh, it's not worth reading newspapers we used to read because all they do is attack. Everybody's out to get him. Nobody will give him a chance. Mm-hmm. Nobody, and you know, the classic strategy that we're all supposed to pursue is choose your battles. And, um, and, and there's, no, there's no strategy here in terms of choosing one's battles with Donald Trump. So I don't, I don't think that the ethical concerns uh, you know, resonate in terms of 
bringing his, um, reducing his popularity. Just before opening it up to, to the audience, I mean, you, you raised this point about imagining an alternative, like if Donald Trump had played that differently. I'm, I'm wondering, what if Donald Trump, um, there's a good piece in the Wall Street Journal yesterday, Gerald Sabe kind of raised the idea what if Donald Trump had reached out to the Democrats early on? Um, you know, could he have had a different hundred days? Like, led with infrastructure, for example. And in a sense, divided his own base deliberately, but with, with a the prospect of being able to pull enough Democrats over so that he could get a win early on in the administration. I don't know, Joan, what do you, that's kind of closer to your yeah. impossible, where the United States is too polarized along partisan lines for, for that? I mean, I actually think about this in terms of the strategy of the Democrats. Yeah. I cannot fathom why the Democrats aren't holding his feet to the fire on this huge, big infrastructure program that's supposed to put everybody back to work. It's the classic wedge issue that's going to wedge apart the white working class base and the sort of country club Republicans. And I don't understand why Democrats aren't all over that. But, I mean, there are other wedge issues. I think that the, this huge cut in corporate taxation that he's yeah. proposing could split the Republican Party between the deficit hawks and the sort of Reaganite stimulus people. Right. Um, so governing is difficult. And I, th- I thought one of the interesting things about the health care fight was that it revealed that my personal caricature of the Republican Party is completely without principle, because otherwise how could they have embraced this guy, was not true, because there was a group who said actually, this is going to be a mess, and we're not prepared to go with this, because, in fact, in their lights, it wasn't radical enough in, right, in right. Uh, uh, dismantling Obamacare, which showed that even the Republican Party is, is very divided. So, yeah, he's going, to, he's, he's going to really struggle, I think, to get working coalitions together. Different well, than business, putting together a coalition. Yeah. I mean, if I can jump in just one more minute, in terms of Obamacare, what you had, the reason it survived is you had the... Um, that some people who were, had, these were representing white working class voters who were really severely hit by the opioid epidemic mm. and they wanted to keep the Medicare money. And then you had the ideological Republicans who wanted to completely eliminate Obamacare. So that also shows um, you know, that you could, you could wedge this if Democrats were doing this in a smart way. Mm-hmm. Not sure they are. Any other thoughts about, uh, on him as a politician, really? Uh, well, that's I what mean, this question is about. I think where you're leading is, is, is an important point to draw out, which is that um, obviously the Republican Party was very divided. It wasn't extreme enough. It was, or it was too much, right? Um, but, he, but, but the story that I think is really important one is that he did not invest in trying to sell this in any way. He didn't build coalitions. He didn't go across to, you know, he just didn't meet, right? Um, and so the interesting thing now, as he has his tax reform plan and perhaps infrastructure at some point, uh, is wh- whether he's going to learn any lessons from this, when it, whether he's actually going to engage in the politics of coalition building. But it's and also, I, I don't yeah. suspect he is. But I think part of the problem is that he, he himself is not clear what he believes in. Uh, yeah. So, you know, is, 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 he, is he in favour of the border tax or isn't he? 
he, I think he would change one day to the next. Um, you know, and, and then there was the famous comment on healthcare, which who knew it was so complicated? And North Korea. Yeah. Who knew? Who knew? Well, that, and there, the Xi Jinping could could sit down with him, and he'd say, "Well, I thought China was being, you know, really unhelpful on North Korea, but I had a ten minute conversation with the president of China, and he explained to me it was more complicated." <laughs> Again, and these are the, I'm not making, these are direct quotes. They are. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm slightly awe of Donald again, because <laughs> it, when you think of his language, because it, it, of course it's ridiculous mm. that NATO is obsolete. Actually, I've discovered it's not obsolete. Um, so just ignore my words. I'm only the president. Mm. Um, but in a sense, that sort of offers, is quite a, a, an interesting way. He, does, he may not formally be negotiating, but his happy abandonment of anything he's ever said mm. uh, is, is in a way a, a way of saying, well, yeah, you, you tell me to say something different and I may have a different conversation. I think it presents an interesting problem for, for, opposi- for opposition, be that either in the, the media or politicians, which is how do they respond to that mm-hmm. language? Uh, because as, as we saw in, in the campaign, the conventional language of, let's call it politically correct, outrage actually had perverse effects. Yeah, sure. it, it, it bolstered him endlessly. Uh, so what is the language either of conversation with Donald to put, you know, to try and you know, introduce ideas into his, his vocabulary, or what is the language you're going to use to really critique that? I'm not just talking about the policy. Well, I, 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 I just think, on the, I think for him that, I mean, I think a lot of people who dealt with him is that they, he wants something that he can present as a win. Yes. Yes. Uh, and so apparently, with Merkel, he said at a certain point, you know, is there an opportunity for a quick win on Ukraine? And she said no. <laughs> <laughs> but they have very um, but, good chemistry. Um, yeah. And, and so, and I think that the, the Mexicans, when they sort of in a slightly horrified way think, well, how the hell do we deal with him on NAFTA? They know that they'll have to, in the end, come up with some renegotiation that he can present as a victory. Mm. And, uh, and then what that looks like doesn't matter. I mean, what, what the details of that are, are almost immaterial, yeah. provided he can say it's one. Well, I, I, would, I would agree with that. I would just slightly put it in a slightly different way. I think what he is both vulnerable on and what he cares about is competency. Mm. And so the reason this guy's now, first, the 100 days didn't matter. Now he's completely preoccupied with the 100-day yardstick, right? This 100-day yardstick, presidents have been held to since FDR. And, um, you know, if, if, if I were in the opposition, uh, that's where I would be pushing. You don't get the job done. What are the legislative accomplishments? Most of his accomplishments are executive orders. Not, it, 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 there's really been no demonstration of a, an ability to bring people together to build coalitions, winning coalitions, and I think because he cares so much about kind of like, is he winning? Mm. That's, you know, that's the vulnerable point, personally. But, um, you know, but there's a learning curve, and we see him. He, I think he's moving up the learning curve, you know? So we're going to open it up here to, um, to questions. Um, so raise your hand, and I'll, we'll, we'll start with this woman in the gray sweater, I think, right over there. And... Um, We'll bundle a few questions. So we'll go to this gentleman back up in the left there. Yeah, with your hand up, right? I'll come down here. Go ahead. Just briefly introduce yourself, too, okay? Hi. Um, I'm Anais. I'm an LSE alumna, and I now work in environmental communication. 
My question is, and I know it's a bit early at this stage to be able to tell, but how likely do you think um, that there's a chance that he might not want to seek a second mandate? And the reason I'm asking is actually a real question. The reason I'm saying this is he's expressed several of times that he thinks that Healthcare is very complicated, it's more complicated than he thought, and NATO as well, and all of his topic is like, oh, well, this is actually very complicated. And he, and he doesn't seem to be enjoying what he's doing, really. And, um, and also, he's, it's a guy who wrote a book about the art of a deal, and he doesn't seem to be able to do that. So how likely is it that he might, like, is he too fond of himself to, to realize that he actually doesn't like his job and he, yeah. So we've got one question, will he seek a second term, or another way to put that is, will he actually see out his first term? And, um, <laughs> so, um. Hello, I'm Anton Alessi. So my question, this anti-elite sentiment, like they're talking about us to an extent. It's a conclave of professors, journalists, London. <laughs> and I don't know, it's like we don't get to be the protagonists in this sort of struggle. So it's like the elites are... I don't know, attacked, attacked, attacked. To what extent, like, could you formulate some sort of strategy for the, I guess, the elite to bark back? <laughs> okay, so this is kind of like the counter-revolution question. Um, so, let's see. Uh, right up here in the front. Hi, um, Christine Chow, uh, LSE alumni. Um, I'm interested in the repercussions of what he says in his policy to businesses and investment decisions. I'll give two ex quick examples. Um, uh, earlier this year, um, the CEO of Infosys, uh, Vishal Sika, at the uh, World Economic Forum, he referred to um, President Trump as he is all about innovation and entrepreneurship. And being primarily an evidence-based person, I struggle to look for justification for that. <laughs> but understanding that that <coughs> statement might be related to the H-1B visas that he might be needed for Infosys as a consulting company that outsourced a lot of IT solutions in, to India. Second uh, is Dakota Access Pipeline. Uh, it's a project that has been hugely controversial from the human rights perspective. And a group, a, a big group of inst institutional uh, uh, responsible investor has been writing to various banks, including banks from the US, uh, Europe, uh, Japan, and China, about the funding and the suitability um, of, of this project to go ahead. And back in February, Trump actually signed the final go ahead. And um, investors, responsible investors and businesses, would find it extremely hard to follow. Um, some of the business ethics as well as ethical policy, investment policy they have been following. And from that perspective, he, looking back to us as individuals, irrespective of what we do as a profession, what do you think we can individually do? Okay. And we'll take one more question. This fellow over here with a raincoat. Um, I think that, yeah. And then we'll do another round after we get some answers. Thank you. My name is Armin Osmanovic, and I study politics at Queen Mary University. My question is directed specifically to Mr. Rackman. Uh, you wrote an article uh, for Financial Times six years ago about American decline. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you wrote an article about uh, the American decline, and you argued that despite the fact that America is uh, militarily and economically ahead compared to all the rising superpowers, uh, it will never experience the same 
global dominance. Now, six years later, everything has changed, including the presidency, and uh, it's clear that Trump is a very controversial character. Uh, on one hand, we can see that there is a massive anti-Trump sentiment and also a massive rise in populism. So my question is, to what extent do you think that um, the soft power of the USA will decline? Thank you. Okay, that's great. These are great questions. Um, so, I, I mean, I've got, uh, you know, uh, what are the chances um, that he'll uh, seek a, a second term? He's, um, he's raking in the dough for a second run right now. Um, a, uh, an anti-elite, uh, what, what should the elites do um, in response? What can individuals do? I think a different kind of question, and then the question that's clearly for Gideon, were you right or wrong, um, kind of a soft power <laughs> question. Always right, yeah. Right? So um, just jump in. You can pick a question and, and kind of run with it. Maybe, Gideon, go ahead and... Yeah, well, th uh, thanks for remembering an article from six years ago. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, I mean, having lambasted Trump for not being consistent, I'm, I mean, I'm sure if you put my articles back to back, I think I'd probably be guilty of the same thing, but... Yeah, I mean, the, the whole question of uh, American power, decline, etc., is one that we've been wrestling with for a long time. And uh, thinking back six years ago, what had happened, I guess it was still in the aftermath of the financial crisis and trying to figure out had America sort of peaked as a, as a power. Um, and I think you could argue that Trump is, in a way, a symptom of, of decline or, or of um, self-perceived decline. He's the first American president I know who's run on... And a very pessimistic, dark platform. Well, now, of course, he did say he was the guy to fix it. But to say that um, America's not actually the greatest country in the world to live in, that, in fact, it's carnage out there, was the word he used in his mm. inauguration, that uh, far from being hugely admired, the world is laughing at us, uh, that, uh, you know, he wasn't a Reaganite, our best days lie, lie ahead, thing morning in America, it was it's one minute to midnight and the whole thing's coming to a close. And the fact that that resonated, I think was, you know, some might call it a form of political genius, that he sensed that that very untraditional message, that America was ready for that message. Um, but I think it is almost perceived outside the states. I mean, obviously, Obama was, was a very, certainly in Europe, a very popular president. Trump clearly isn't. Um, and I, th I think that he, he will be very damaging to this question of soft power. It's interesting that uh, Joe Nye, who's, who's very keen uh, to resist notions of... He's, he's in an interesting position, Nye, because he's, yeah. also, he's missed anti-decline. He's that sort of America is going to continue as the dominant power for a very long time. But he's also missed a soft power. And so he was writing just today that, well, you know, American power is still enormous and uh, the challenges to it aren't there, but Trump is eroding soft power very, very fast, precisely because of this American nationalism and the failure to realize that institutions that he regards as constraining America are actually a way of sort of spreading American power and influence around the world. And um, so, yeah, I, th I think it's a turning point, both in the way in which America perceives itself. Is, I think it's a sign of hesitation and doubt in America that, that he won at all. And I think it is destructive for American influence. The one thing I would say, though, is that just as the American elites, you know, part of the instinct to normalize is, well, what do they say otherwise? You know, our country's finished, you can't. 
So you end up saying, well, you know, we can manage this, we can get through this. And there's a similar instinct amongst American allies. I mean, if you look, particularly the Europeans, but also Japan, mm-hmm. what do they say? They, they can't say, well, we're giving up on America because they don't have an alternative system. So they have to, in, the, in a sense, try to normalize it and buy in to some extent into Trump. Or to strengthen those in the administration that have, you know, similar views to, yep. to them. Um, uh, Joan, uh, you want to take on this question of will he see out his administration? Well, my, my husband thinks he's going to quit because it's no fun. Yeah. <laughs> so there's that. But the, the one I wanted to, to actually focus on is um, what is a strategy for the elite to bite back? Mm. Um, and I actually, with respect, think that's exactly the wrong question. Um, I think that the elite needs to listen. Um, uh, the, the white working class in the United States, and this is, has a lot of resonance in Europe with economic populism, wages of white working class men have fallen 46% in recent decades. They are really hurting. These families who had a grasp on middle class life for two short generations after World War II have now lost that. And they're falling into you know, despair deaths, and we've read all about the, the economic. We're talking about inequality of income mm-hmm. and how this is felt on the ground by people whose fathers and grandfathers could lead, lead a, a, a supportive family in a middle-class life, and they can't. I'm not interested in poking back at these people. I'm interested in listening to these people. These people are saying something important to us. Exactly when that was happening to them, and I'm someone, you know, you don't know me, but I'm someone who's worked in feminism for 30 years. Race, gender, that's what I've worked on. On the other hand, in exactly the time when these people's economic prospects were plummeting, what were we focusing on? We were focusing on ethical eating, environmentalists. I I started out as an environmentalist, you know. Um, We're we're focusing on race, we're focusing on gender, uh, gay marriage. We're not focusing on them. I think they're angry with us for a reason. And I think that Donald Trump uses PC so effectively Mm. as a poke in the eye of the elite is because we've left a certain group of disenfranchised Americans out of our conversation, and that's the white working class. Now, have they enjoyed racial privilege? Yeah, totally. You know those two great generations after World War II? Black people didn't get those great jobs. Totally get that. On the other hand, isn't really what we want is to offer all hardworking people great jobs, including these people? I just want to agree massively with what Joan's saying, but um, but to to look at it in in a... Another way as well, which is to think about, you know, how these elites are con- constructed. You know, I agree absolutely about listening and thinking about people who are sort of not in the elite. Well, there has to be said, um, and Gideon referenced this, you know, there, there are, you know, there are right-wing people in the liberal elite as well. Um, and I think one of the, f- the, the, the things we've got to face up to, especially with your sort of point about the panel... Uh, the LSE, for example, which is the, one of the most hermetically sealed liberal bubbles I've ever known. Um, a wonderful place that is deeply concerned about the rest of the world, and yet it, ideologically um, incredibly undiverse. 
and I don't just mean in terms of the makeup, in terms of race, etc., but you know, ideologically undiverse, and therefore profoundly disturbed and shocked mm. and ignorant of why anyone would ever think differently. Tone deaf. And that's... So I'm not just having a go at my place where I work. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I work very hard to get to be part of this elite. I wish it, <laughs> I wish it was better paid. Um, but but um, I'm very conscious that, um, that, that we reinforce, especially, sorry to go on about the media bit, but especially around you know, the idea of information and what you know uh, and what you know about other people. And that's partly about journalism, that journalism, you know, this liberal elite media was incredibly self-referential. I mean, literally, lived in the same place, went to the same colleges, etc., married each other, uh, uh, and so on, and, and stayed physically in those, in those coastal, co- coastal zones. So I think we've got to really start, as you said, by certainly listening to the others, but also by thinking, what is it about, you know, the, the, the elites that we are, how are we constructed them, and how can we, in a sense, deconstruct them? And that is not to surrender remotely the, the, the liberal values that I cherish in this bubble. Leslie? Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm a little bit uncomfortable. Um, and I think it's because, uh, for two reasons. One is that there are a lot of very wealthy people who vote for Donald Trump. Mm. This is not simply about poor, angry people. And frankly, there are a lot of um, people who I guess we would call working class, although it's not really a term that we use in the United States, um, that are not angry and still voted for Donald Trump. So personally, I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up in Omaha, Nebraska. I know plenty of people many of them on my Facebook page, who have very happy lives and voted for Donald Trump. So I'm a little bit uncomfortable with the narrative that we've very easily slipped into, that people are poor, angry, disaffected. There's plenty of that, but there's also a lot more going on, a lot more complexity. I know people who have traveled the world and voted for Donald Trump and are very knowledgeable about the world and speak multiple languages. So there is, a, there is an economic component. There is stagnation. But remember that... Eight years ago, uh, President Obama, at 100 days, had a 65% approval rating with 8.5% unemployment on the back of the worst economic crisis that America has suffered since the Great Depression, and things didn't look like this. So there's more going on. The second thing I want to say is that we tend as analysts, uh, academics, journalists, whatever, you know, the, the panoply of the, the particular kind of liberal elite, elites that we are, which is a much smaller, much more narrow for, version of elite than the broader category of elites. Um, we tend to look for structural, de- demographic um, trends, when in fact a lot of things are actually about politics. So I remember landing in Philadelphia, turning on the TV and looking at the Republican primaries, and it was like a Mr. America lineup. I mean, where do you look, right? So why does Donald Trump emerge? He emerges partly because it was divided. Why does he win? It's not because necessarily everything he said was so resonant. It's because people didn't like Hillary Clinton. And remember, he didn't really win in terms of the popular vote. So to then read off of this, all of these long-term structural trends about the decline of America, and, and, I, and I do like what you said, but I don't fully agree with it, um, because Donald Trump, <laughs> I mean, it, you know, <laughs> <laughs> Donald Trump, it was just that people didn't like Hillary Clinton, yeah, right? It, it was wasn't that America thinks America's in such a terrible state. Most Americans think America's pretty damn good and there's really nowhere else they'd rather live. 
in a, in a heartbeat. Never, right? This is it. This is the greatest country on earth. And Donald Trump's a whole hell of a lot better than Hillary Clinton. So they voted for him or they didn't vote. But it wasn't Donald Trump. I mean, Americans are not depressives, right? We are very optimistic people. America's always on the front foot. So I don't think it's a story. We're going to take another round of questions here. Um, How about that woman in the green T-shirt? All the way back there. Yeah. We'll go there. And then the gentleman uh, in a blue sweatshirt. Hello. Hello, my name's Clara. I'm not LSE Illumini. Um, question around how does a liberal media organization objectively evaluate Trump through its own lens? Charlie, that has you all over it. Um, <laughs> go ahead. Andrew, Andrew Smith. Um, Gideon particularly mentioned how um, uh, Donald Trump can change his opinion within 24 hours, you know, 180 degrees. Uh, so one of the things I struggle with is what's the point of reading any analysis about his policy? <laughs> Because it can change in 24 hours. I, I literally, I, I read the Financial Times almost every day. I see a poli- an article of analysis, I just move on. I don't waste my time. Why, why bother writing it? Why bother reading it is my yes. question. So, okay. So liberal media, stop reading. With uh, her hand back there. Yeah, right there. Right, right behind him. Woman, right to your right. There you go. Hello. I'm... Um, my name's Amy. I'm a fundraiser at Great Ormond Street, but that's irrelevant. Um, I, my question is around um, women's rights. So we've talked a little bit about gender, um, but what is, what's the threat to women's rights um, to take stock of the Trump presidency so far from that perspective, just to prompt on that? I'm going to take one more. This gentleman right here in the centre. Can, can you come down here? Uh, Right here in the center. Great. Mm-hmm. John Taylor from the Center for Commercial Law Studies at Queen Mary University, just down the road. Welcome. Thank you. Um, as we've been listening to the panel in, in a most enjoyable exchange of views, there's been an announcement in the U.S. of the tax cut. Yes. Seventy. Uh, sorry, corporation tax down to 15%. Mnuchin would like. Um, individual taxes cut. maximum down to 35 with just three brackets. Does this change any of your views from what we've just heard? Okay, so we've got a question about the liberal media, a question about, well, it's not really about the Financial Times, but um, um, a question about uh, women and women's rights, and a question about Christmas. Um, Take your pick. Um, okay. Shall I do the, I'll do the FT? And I'm just on the tax cut. It's very interesting. I mean, obviously, the question is, can he get it through? And we'll, right. we'll see. Um, but on the... Is it worth reading analysis? I mean, it's a good question, because I, for example, I've, I've got a, a book at the moment, which, which, which came, out in, came out in August on a lot of it about the US and Asia. And then there's a year between the publication of that and the paperback. So I thought, OK, I'll take the opportunity to do a, a Trump preface and this, is, this will obviously be the most up-to-date bit of the book, but in a funny way, it's already the most dated bit of the book because what Trump was saying in January and what's actually happened are very different things. So it's a valid point, but I think that the way to approach analysis and perhaps lure you back into reading it is, <laughs> is, is, to, um, is not to predict what necessarily what he's going to do, 
But you can look at the battle for his mind, if you like, between... There are clearly factions within the White House, within the Republican Party and the administration, with different views. There's the Bannon, there is a consistent-ish Bannonite worldview. Peter Navarro stands for certain things. Gary Cohn stands for certain things. There's an argument about Russia policy going on. Uh, so presenting those ideas and trying to get some kind of indication of where it's going, I think, is not just valid, I think it's necessary. And the other thing is there's also an outside world. And so looking at how China or Mexico or the UK or the European Union are going to deal with this revolution, apparent revolution, in the world's most powerful country is pretty critical. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, you I think the mistake would be to d be definitive and to say, I have identified what Trumpism is all about and therefore I can tell you what the next four years are going to be like. That's clearly uh, a mistake. But I think uh, to look at the way things could go and the, the way that uh, Trump himself could go and how people would react is, is pretty crucial. And, and it's also unavoidable. You know, it's, in a way, it's a sort of almost Zen self-discipline to say, well, I'll just read the news and I'm not going to think about the implications of... But that's not how people behave. And that's not actually how people in, in foreign governments behave. You know, I was just in the Netherlands meeting people in their government. And, of course, they're agog to try and figure out what the hell is he up to? What, what's he going to do next? Right. Yeah. Joan. Well, um, Trump is bad news for women. Yeah. I mean, we have a president who bragged about sexual assault. Um, so really, one of the reasons that I'm talking so much about social class right now is actually that's the best thing I can do in terms of helping women in the long term, is to be in talking about social class and, build, and bridge, uh, bridge this divide. Um, the de Planned Parenthood may be defunded. Um, Clint, the Clinton overtime rules um, have been gutted so that they're no, no longer going to go into effect, which have a differential impact on women. Um, if you look at the Equal Opportunity Employment Commission website, they're taking down a lot of materials that were designed to aid employers in avoiding discrimination along gender, but a lot of other things, disability, race. Um, uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center has documented there's a, an increased hate crimes against not only people of color and LGBTQ, but women. Um, this is, um, uh, and there was a recent study that showed actually that there is more gender bias in the workplace in terms of men talking over women um, because you have uh, a certain version of masculinity that was kind of on the wane that is now um, uh, being revalorized. So this is really, really bad news for women. I think we're going to move from women to the media. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, if I understood the objectivity question correctly, I mean, it sort of plays into the analysis thing uh, as well. Again, one of the great things about Donald uh, is that he's made us, I think, much more uh, realistic about what is essentially politics. You know, I like your point that this, this is about politics in a sense. And politics, yes, is about evidence. It's about facts. Mm. It's about um, prescriptions. Uh, but it's also about emotions. And it's about symbolism. And it's about history and circumstance. Uh, and I think that in the past, liberal media perhaps like liberal academe, or just academe, has tried to be 
too definite about things. It's been interested in certainty rather than in contradiction and complexity. And journalists are a bit like that too, because it's not because we're stupid, but we, you know, it's because journalism's task is to reduce a very complex world into a bit of analysis or a bit of reportage, even when it's sophisticated, like Gideon writes. You know, it's still a reduction. Sure. Of course, it has to be. Uh, and so forth, that journalists will always cling to trends, memes, issues. And we're seeing now that, you know, and it's not just because of Donald, but Donald has revealed this even more, that it, you know, people's beliefs are very contradictory. We've seen this with fake news. You tell them it's fake news. It's not correct. Yeah, but it's great. Uh, and I'd love to share it with my friends um, because it speaks to me. It says something to me. And I'm very interested in that, what I call the kind of emotional part of it. But it's about a whole series of things. And so I think journalism should not strive for some... Well, sorry, it should strive for a kind of objectivity, but it should not see that as, uh, you know, <clears throat> something that it can achieve. It should be as interested in the subjective, the complex, uh, the effective, um, the human. And I think if it can rediscover... And it can rediscover that because it's got all these amazing ways now to connect with people. Much derided Twitter, etc., etc., <clears throat> but these are also fantastic ways uh, to understand people, to talk to people, to listen to people, and to connect to people in much more human ways. Leslie, just a quick question. I mean, <coughs> those tax cuts have to be paid for. Yeah. He's not going to be able to pay for those. Arthur Laffer is back. Um, he literally, he's literally <laughs> back. He's on the speaker, speaker sir. Um, I mean, so the question, I guess, is, I, I mean, I know you have another point, but I mean, maybe just to put this out, is there a way for him to sell this inside, I mean, inside a Republican Party where you've got people that are very focused on debt and not running it up? Um, and, I, you know, I, I mean, I, I just, is this just... Uh, a marker for 100 days to kind of take everybody's mind off of it, or I, don't it, it, I mean, it, I, I don't know, right? It is very puzzling, right? It, it, because he, I think you're exactly right that he's suddenly very obsessed with this 100 days. I mean, to, you know, there's a lot happening on Wednesday. There's going to be a bit more happening on Thursday. Um, and will he then let go of it, renegotiate it, walk it back? I don't know. So I don't, I don't have a good answer, but I think it's puzzling. You, you're the person on the, the domestic politics of the Congress and where this is going to go, so we should ask you. But I wanted to also say one thing about why you should read Gideon's work. And, and I mean that quite seriously. I don't just mean Gideon, but I, I so do read all back, of Gideon's so work. I, I mean, I, I had the opposite reaction of the gentleman who said, you know, forget it, don't read it. For me, since um, Brexit, and especially since November 8th, 9th, I have found journalism to be, thank God for journalism, right? I mean, academics, I'm a little bit more skeptical of at the moment because it's taking too long. Um, and, and I think that the one healthy thing that's happened to a lot of academics is that they said, okay, actually, we need to be willing to accept that some of the long-term projects are going to be a bit longer term because there actually is something very relevant and very powerful that we need to engage with right now. And for me, the saving grace has been very good journalism. And it's not that it's right or wrong. It's that it gives you a place to continue to have this conversation at any time of the day or night across multiple constituencies um, and to get access to ideas and knowledge and facts that you just can't get, right? How often do you have time to come to the LSE? How often does Peter put on a roundtable? And so, journal, you know, I frequently disagree with the journalism that I read, but it makes me smarter. It makes me think more. 
it makes me more engaged in every single um, step I take. So I, I think it's a huge mistake to disengage from from journalism right now. The most important thing is to stay absolutely. Mm-hmm. You, you yeah, no, just, just briefly, I mean, I, I think that. Um, you know, the academic analysis of Trump will come into its own in years to come. You know, it's yeah. an odd thought to think that if the LSE is still here in 200 years' time, people will be writing essays about, just as they write essays about Jefferson, they'll be writing essays about Trump and how, how did this happen. It, is it? Right. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's a historic event. Uh, um, and, and it's going to take uh, decades to figure out what it meant. Um, is but, there room on Mount Rushmore? On the fake news front and the journalism front, I mean, I think that one of the things... Is, maybe we slightly cling to, but I, I sort of tell myself that the truth will out in, in, in the end, that uh, at the moment it can be a bit demoralising because you think that what's true, what isn't true doesn't appear to matter. But if you think back, say, it's, you know, I was reading a biography of, of Orwell, uh, the whole origins of 1984 and why he was writing about fake news, the Ministry of Truth, uh, was having lived through the 1930s, seen what fascism and communism had done to distort the truth, Mm -hmm. fought those battles, sometimes losing battles, but in the end, their version fell away, and the truth did out. So I think it's worth plugging away. We'll take another round of questions here. Um, uh, How about that gentleman right over in the corner there? Okay, we'll start there. All the way to the two thirds of the way up, she's got a blue or a black shirt on. Oh, it's a guy. Sorry. Oops. Yeah, keep going. That's the camera. Uh, okay. <laughs> Go ahead. Grab the mic. Hello, uh, Robin Ray, a student at SOAS, and I was just interested in hearing your thoughts about Trump's children. Do you consider them, actually, his daughter and his son-in-law? Um, would you consider them the grown-ups in the, in the administration or rather the children as well? Um, and what do you think are the prospects for conflicts of interest? Would there, do you think there will be legal issues in this whole thing? Um, and do you think there could be a way to reach out to Donald Trump, as is, for example, um, Angela Merkel invited his daughter uh, to come to the Women's Summit? Do you think that is a way for, for us who are not American, um, other governments, to, to get a better relationship with this administration? Okay, that's the Ivanka question. Um, no, there was a the woman in the red right there. Go ahead. Yeah. Hello. Um, Hi, um, I'm an A-level politics student, uh, so I have a bit of a different question. So you know how Trump is obviously controversial beyond all, all words, <laughs> even to people in his own party, which it still baffles my mind how. Um, do you think there could possibly be questions of impeachment, given the absolute controversy of the things he's suggested, the things he's tried to implement has ultimately failed due to legal restrictions? It seems a really strange thought that that might not be a possible outcome so it might not be whether or not he'd take a second uh, term but whether or not he'd last the first one people would let him okay so the impeachment question um, or does the Russia story have legs Um, how about the gentleman right down here in the front and then uh, the woman with the kind of pink 
summarize the question yeah, we've got it. Uh, but so so what um, what are the long-term impacts that we, that we not sort of not not for Donald Trump sort of not not for the next four or eight years but but sort of long term what what does this mean for American democracy that that we have a that we have a president who's doing these sorts of things okay good and one last question right here go ahead um, I'm Bushra I'm also an a-level politics student um, I just wanted to ask people have been talking about how like the influence of race in the election was kind of over, has been overplayed and overestimated. And I actually think it's still underestimated. And I also, I think the media has a big, has a lot to answer for in creating narratives around race and immigration. Um, so just what are the panel's thoughts? Okay, great. So we've got, we've got questions here. Uh, you know, some of them have overlap. Um, uh, the future of democracy, the possibility of impeachment, um, the children, the children, not unrelated to some of these questions, and and the role of race in the election. So, uh, Joan, you want to take a race in the election? Um, yes, I mean the 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 sort of standard narrative is that, um, as you can tell, I've stopped writing about gender. Just wrote a book about the white working class, so I'm talking about class here. Um, the, the sort of standard narrative is that, that they just voted um, based on racism. And there's you know, robust elements of truth. Racism was definitely a factor. Um, Trump made open alliances with white supremacists in the most shocking way humanly possible. Um, on the other hand, I think it is at our peril we write off this cry from the white working class on the grounds that we... Uh, they, we, they can't be listened to because they're just too racist. I mean, it's, um, some of them are racist, but there's also a lot of economic pain here, and there's a lot of poking in the eye of the elite because of true and justified anger at the elites on the part of this group. Um, the, the other thing, and it's a longer argument, is that it's totally true that the white working class is racist. They're racist in faulting people of color for being less moral because their identity uh, really centers around themselves as moral people. We in the elite are racist as faulting people of color for being lacking in merit because our identity focuses around merit. So you have to get to not only the social construction of race, but the social, and uh, social construction of racism and the political um, the political work that it does in different class locations. Mm. Sorry to talk like a professor. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, the democracy question? I'll say a word about that. I, I do, it is the thing that I, I mean, I'm sure we all worry about this. Um, and I think maybe one of the, who is it that asked the question? Right, right. down here. Um, 
this is where I think this debate about policies and formal policies and formal institutions versus the erosion of norms becomes really important because, of course, there are a lot of things that are happening that one thinks must be illegal, but it's not clear that they are actually. And that's that gray area where we, we, we're now understanding in a whole new way how much of American democracy, of liberalism, of everything, right, rests on norms that we've held very close and actually probably don't rest on formal institutions um, and formal laws or policies. So, so the question is then, how far can you erode them? And if in four years or in three and a half years or whatever, and eight years or eight years, um, we get a normal mainstream candidate in the sense that they uphold those norms, again, can we just move back to the center? Like how much damage can be done that's lasting? And, uh, and, and that, I think, is where a lot of the interesting work should be done right now, thinking through those. I don't have an answer. I think it would be wrong to think that any of us have an answer to that question. But I think that's where a lot of people should be investing their energy is in interrogating that. So what about the, the children and maybe the son-in-law assets? Well, I, I think the, the children are a very interesting dilemma for, for liberal America because... Uh, on the one hand, they're the most, one of the most shocking aspects of the Trump White House is this sort of <coughs> open nepotism, people who are completely unqualified by anything other than being related to him. Right. On the other hand, um, they appear to be the liberal voice in the White House. <laughs> um, so, um, and Trump said this unconsciously revealing thing when he was defending Ivanka over her clothesline with yeah. Nordstrom. And he said, you know, it's so unfair... She's always urging me to do the right thing. <laughs> like, a tacit acknowledgement that he's often tempted to do the wrong thing. But, then, <laughs> uh, but there's his daughter. So she's, she's the conscience. Um, so it's, yeah. But I, I think that it's one of the things that I think maybe, you know, f- foreign governments from, you know, less entrenched democratic traditions will now recognise in the United States. I mean, I'm sure when Xi Jinping or, the, or Erdogan looks at... Uh, Trump, they think, oh, well, I know how this works. Yeah. You know, there's the family, and you, 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 somebody <coughs> gets, they, there's a big, a big contract, lands up with them, which is not exactly from the government, but from somebody I know, and everybody feels a lot better about each other, <laughs> and, and that, that works fine, and the leader's a bit sort of dotty, but we've often had those as well. You know, you work around <laughs> that with the people. But, so it's, it's, it's not, uh, it's not um, unrecognizable to them. Yeah. I think it's yeah. quite, quite familiar in some ways. Um, just on the race thing, I mean, this is just anecdotal, and I, I thought what you had to say, about, Professor Orley or not, about the social construction of race is very interesting. But just anecdotally covering the campaign, it was one of the things that was very striking to me was that the, there were almost no black delegates at the Republican convention. Mm-hmm. I think it was 1%. It was something like 35% at the Democratic convention. Uh, and it was, it, was much, it was obviously a big racial cleavage. And then I remember going to a Trump rally like 12 days before the vote in Florida and just looking around. There was, I think, one or two black people. I mean, even the person carrying the Blacks for Trump sign was white. Uh, (laughs) So so it was was pretty noticeable. Charlie, just uh, very quick on the the family thing. I think it's one of the weird things looking at the, 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 the American politics over the last decade or so is you know, the, the two Bushes and then the Clinton, and we expected to get another Clinton, and then the response to Trump and his 
his, his family is, well, perhaps Chelsea should stand next time. <laughs> and, and, and you think that's kind of weird. Um, but I am just in, the, in this sort of how the rest of the world responds to it. Um, and I don't think we know how. I think Angela Merkel had perhaps the best response, which was partly to invite Ivanka, but also just, do you notice how she didn't respond to all the craziness from Donald over the last three, six months, whenever he referred to BMWs and the Nazis? Mm. She was just really clever at not responding. And in a way, Theresa May has been clever in, in, in not over-responding. But, and, I th- and I think it's going to be really interesting how nice we pick these together. When I first came to the LSE, it was in 2000, and, well, this thing happened in 2007. There was a delegation of communication chiefs from Capitol Hill, both parties. And they were coming over on a tour of Europe because they were, it was obviously the end of uh, George W.'s presidency, and they were so concerned about the damage that had been done, they said, by that presidency to relations and public perceptions of America and American politics and democracy back in 2007 after George W., my God, I'd love to host that delegation when they come round again <laughs> in three, four years, uh, talking about how on earth we perceive uh, Trump now. We still, don't, we still do not have, I don't think, uh, a vocabulary and a way of understanding. I know we've, we've lost, you know, we both speak English, I know there are differences, but politically I think mm. we are really struggling to how to relate this. There are too many glib analogies about, you know, populism... Sorry, I know that's your topic. But too many glib comparisons between populism in America or populism in Europe. They are radically different. I think that's one of the most disturbing and interesting aspects about the way that he's realigning uh, our politics. Yeah, wow. So we are, we're um, almost out of time. I I suppose we have time for one short, one last... One last killer question. (laughs) So, um, So, okay, we're 100 days in as of Saturday. What should we expect in the oh, next hundred? God. Any, any kind of thoughts about kind of just general thrust, I suppose? I'm, okay, could be inconsistency. Well, I, I, I don't know what... I, I don't, I, to be consistent, I, I'll say you can't expect anything because he's inconsistent. But, um, <laughs> but I think that one thing I'm certainly interested to see is his verse, first venture abroad. He hasn't uh, done it yet. Yeah. Mm. You know, he sent Ivanka to Berlin, but he's now got to go to a NATO summit mm-hmm. in July. That's and I think uh, yeah. how he is received in Europe, will there be big demonstrations? Does he react emotionally to that, yeah. as he's quite liable to do? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think will be a big moment. That's interesting. Big moment, next 100 days, thing to, thing to look for? I'm actually focused on what I hope the Democrats will do in the next 100 days yeah. rather than, than Trump. Um, First of all, don't dismiss these white working class voters. Um, The single factor that determined um, most strongly whether a county would go for Trump was the presence of high school educated voters. This is very powerful. The Electoral College gives these people um, outsized, uh, outsized force. So I think what Democrats should do is to say, look, everybody's not going to go to college. We tried that for 40 years. It didn't work. Two-thirds of Americans still don't graduate from college. We want to create a new education to employment pipeline and really uh, get Silicon Valley to help with industry invent a new generation of higher-skilled, upskilled, blue-collar, and low-wage jobs to give people a sustained middle-class standard of living. 
That's what Democrats should be doing if they're smart. Unfortunately, as I said before, I think they're sleepwalking their way into Trump's second term. Charlie, any chance that we see a kind of detente between Trump and the media over the next 100 days? Like any kind of change? Well, I don't think it's about detente, but as I say, I think it's, it's a bit of a phony war. He, 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 it's, a, it's a ritual aggression. Uh, and they, the basic fact about um, you know, journalists and politicians is that they do need each other. Mm. Um, and in the past, that relationship has been too intimate and too complacent in Washington and elsewhere. Well, it certainly isn't that anymore. Um, but they do need each other. They will cling to each other. And I think we're, we are going to see that relationship evolving. The journalists I speak to, um, on the one hand, they want Donald to stay Donald because it's so good for the box office. On the other hand, they are exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> Leslie, a final word? Yeah, I think, I think it could be really... I think it could be a very intense and uh, dangerous period in international politics, actually. I think Syria and North Korea, um, partly because recent developments with respect to Turkey and Russia. Um, so I suspect that over the next three months, things, you know, North Korea could test another nuclear right. weapon. Um, Turkey's recent actions, even the last day in Syria, I just think that those two theaters are going to get extremely um, more intense and Probably, I guess the thing to watch is whether Trump will get pulled in more and how he will manage this and whether he will appoint people to help him manage this. Yeah. We know the story of the, the vacant positions. Okay, hey, so we're, we're over time. Um, I want to thank all of you for, for coming. I know we had many more questions, um, but I have a feeling we'll be back and so that there'll be other opportunities to ask questions. Please join me in thanking the panel.